Welcome to Making Waves, the podcast for curious business leaders brought to you by Wavelength. Our specialism is bringing the outside world in. And over the last 14 years, we have taken thousands of leaders physically and digitally inside the boardrooms and shop floors of some of the world's most admired and progressive organizations in Silicon Valley, China, India, and throughout Europe, providing them with world-class external inspiration, education, and provocation. Hello and welcome to the Making Waves podcast. I'm Liz Mosley and I'm here today with a world-renowned trends expert, David Masson, um, who is the founder of New World Same Humans. Knowledge and technical mastery will be hugely advanced by transformer models and that is revolutionary and terrifying. And we're really just only at the beginnings of figuring out what that means. Perhaps the most important aspect of your brand is just the truth of what is happening inside your organization. One of the logical conclusions of this is that there's no such thing as the marketing department anymore. Every department is the marketing department. One of the huge lessons of the pandemic for people was just fragility. Techno, modern, consumer society we've built is fragile. What machines can never do is be another human being seeing me, knowing I am here. If you're wondering, what does this mean for me? It feels a bit scary. It feels very unknown. I mean, look, the first step is just to just to dip your toe in the water. Go and have a play with it. David, um, we're here to talk about the future um, today. And um, although it's a podcast, so people can't see you. Um, for, the, for the benefit of people listening, you're not wearing a, a silver space outfit, as far as I can tell. I can't see a crystal ball. There's no DeLorean. So my opening question really is, how do you know what's going to happen? Why should we believe you? Yes, it's a great question. As you, as you rightly say, the people are not missing out by the fact that they can't see me. There's <laughs> nothing to see, but... Uh, you can't, no one knows what's going to happen. I know it's, I know it's the answer all futurists give. Well, the, the proper ones do. No one knows the future. The future doesn't exist. Um, what, and I'm, I am kind of deeply uncomfortable, fairly uncomfortable, I would say, with the word futurist. I've never called myself one of those. It's something other people call me. And I suspect many other futurists, quote unquote, are in the same bracket. And, and after a while you do slightly give in and just let people call you that. What I'm, and we can talk much more about this, and I suspect we will, what I'm really interested in, and the focus of my attention, the focus of my attention is now, the present moment. I'm looking out to the world, principally the world of innovation, and I'm bringing a certain structure, a certain framework to what I'm seeing to try to make sense of this moment, to make sense of now. And then of course, make certain inferences about what that may mean for the future. And, and those questions only tend to make sense really when you ask, well, what might that mean for, for X, for a certain individual, for a certain organization, for a certain group of people. But I'm really more of a nowist than a futurist. And uh, if you really, again, if you really sort of dig back into it, I'm, I'm really more of a historian than a futurist you know okay, my, I study history at university as many again quote unquote futurists did what I'm really interested in is the evolution of human societies and the forces that that shape and guide that evolution I mean that is a subject of endless fascination and my principal fascination for that you know over the course of my life has been 
historical because then we really can look and we really can see what happened which is a huge advantage when you're trying to think about these kinds of things but um it also creates a set of i i guess skills and a, and a structured way of looking at the world that can help us make sense of this current moment now and help us to make some inferences about where it might be heading and what that might mean and you know typically those are the sorts of things organizations want to ask you i'm yet to find a big corporation that wants to ask me about um you know the protestant reformation and the <laughs> underlying causes sadly if they're, if they're out there i'll take it they, they just they just won't you never know you never know so that's interesting we're going to get into talking about three particular sort of big trends that have what you, you believe to be sort of significant ramifications for people running organizations today but just before we get into that you mentioned structure you talked about how history is important is an important ingredient in getting this stuff right just very briefly for the uninitiated talk to us about the methodology what what is a trend where does it come from how do you know it's there yes it, it i so i bring a certain structured way of looking out to the world um, that I can describe and that helps me identify these things I call trends. Um, and really that uh, that methodology is neatly summed up by the title of this newsletter I write, which is called New World, Same Humans. Trends really are made up of the collision between a changing world and fundamental human needs. So if you let's take the world first, if you look out to the world right now, if you look out to this present moment, what you see is chaos. Essentially, it's very fast moving or it feels as though it's very fast moving. There's all kinds of new technologies emerging. There's all kinds of social change. All that change can throw you off balance. It's very hard to know how to make sense of it all. But there is an anchor. There is a simple truth that can empower you to make sense of all this apparently chaotic, fast moving change. And that is amid all that change, we are still the same old humans with the same old fundamental human needs. So human beings are motivated by a set of needs, things like convenience, value, security, status. They don't really change. They decade on decade, even century on century at their most fundamental, they stay the same. And it's what I'm really looking for is signals that some change in the world, typically in emerging technology, is unlocking a new way to serve a fundamental human need. When a technology emerges that creates or allows for a new way to serve one of these fundamental needs, like value or convenience or security, that's when you get behavior change or mindset or expectation change at scale amid humans. That's what I'm really looking for. And because these trends are founded in fundamental human needs, that's what helps distinguish them from just sort of fads or fashions or the changing sort of weft of kind of, yeah, cultural trend, uh, using that word in a different sense. And um, so, David, that's a great segue, almost like we planned it into the first big trend that we were going to talk about today, because it is 
a new technology trend. You you call it generative AI. I tried to talk about chat GPT with my son in the car yesterday. We had a bit of a disagreement about what it is. So I'm very much hoping I'm right because I decided to put my foot down. And, and this is a new technology. Well, actually, but you just try and summarize what it is for anybody that hasn't had a play with it or hasn't heard of it. Yeah. Um, so it's not just me that calls it generative AI. I mean, it is, it is called generative AI. And th this is a new kind of AI that's doing something very new and exciting. That's the one word, one sentence explanation. Generative AI is founded in transformer models. Transformer models are a new kind of neural network. And you can feel it getting a little bit technical already. I won't go too far, but essentially you can train transformer models on absolutely huge, on data in the wild unstructured, unlabeled data. So that means you can set these neural networks, these transform models loose on just, you know, for example, all the text that's out there on the internet and what it will do kind of on its own without us having to label the data for it is develop an insanely nuanced, sophisticated model of the underlying relationships that exist between the elements in the data. And in this case, the elements in the data would be words. That's what transformer models can do. They're insanely flexible, nuanced pattern learners that can be trained on huge sets of data. There's a couple of things there. You know, in 2021, DeepMind, Google's DeepMind used a transformer model to solve the protein folding problem. That's an iconic problem in the life sciences. That's fast forwarded us, you know, five decades through the life sciences. It's an incredible achievement, but it is at least in the domain of activity that we expected AIs to be effective and powerful. We expected them to, as I would say, impact the eternal human quest for knowledge, for technical mastery. What's really blown people away about transformer models and generative AI is their collision with a with a human need, a human impulse that we we thought was ours. We didn't expect machines to impact on it. Certainly not this soon, maybe really not ever. And that's creativity because large language models, the transformer models trained on all the text in the internet, as I described earlier, that's GPT-3. That's chat GPT, where you can type a prompt and you will get back a novel, um, out text output that is appropriate something it's not gone and got that from the web this is something that didn't exist before that it's written specially for you Just and so to you give can, people yeah, an example. You, you know and you can write you know uh give me a short story featuring the muppets chasing a dragon on mars in the style of you know sherlock holmes and out will pop 500 words that does a pretty good job of doing that and that is revolutionary and terrifying and we're really just only at the beginnings of figuring out what that means so what to use your model which is these um uh evergreen human needs convenience status security value those things what which of those needs is this technology meeting it will meet a few because as i said sort of science knowledge and technical mastery will be hugely advanced by transformer models mm. convenience will be and value mm. because it will automate all kinds of rote tasks you know it can summarize a 1000 word report into three bullet points it could take all the world sports results from you know the weekend and just spit them out in 17 different articles and it can do that in 10 seconds so value you know it will do that a lot cheaper it will do it a lot quicker convenience but 
the one that's so unexpected and the one that has everyone talking is creativity. Mm. You know, if you creativity is the is the one that's causing all the excitement because if you if you look at for example the text to image models like dali 2 where i can write a prompt you know again show me the, the muppets on mars chasing a dragon and and out will pop four beautiful illustrations that show that we thought that was ours that would have taken a highly skilled creative professional illustrator last year kind of thing to do that now it doesn't how do we make sense of that how do we make sense of machines that appear to, they can at least provide a simulation of human creativity at a very high level. That is hugely discombobulating. Now, having spent some time with um, colleagues and associates at, at Wavelength, talking about the future of work, about skills, about the shapes of organizations and all of that stuff, I can't help but feel partly as a journalist, partly as somebody who, you know, wants to believe that human beings are special, I can't help but feeling slightly panicked at the prospect of you can just feed all of the sports results into chat GPT and there you go, there's your weekend sports coverage written. What does what does this mean? What What's the potential? And I guess give me a sense of the time horizon as well for this type of capability you know, reshaping organizations? What does it mean for the way businesses operate and plan? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot going on in that. And I, I, I mean, I think that the first thing to say is humans are special. Humans are special and I think will remain special to other humans. So let me put this in a sensical order. The time frame for, you know, GPT-3 is going to take the weekend sports result and spit out 25 summary articles and do that in 20 seconds rather than you having you know 17 not particularly well paid 25 year olds doing that over the course of 48 hours it is now that is now <laughs> um what people often miss amid the the fear uh, and i and i understand that and the apprehension around these technologies is that people will always respond to other people and we humans will always want to know what other people think about things and about what's happened and we'll always want art and you know creative outputs that's a very clinical way of describing this created by other real human beings i mean so when, okay so when i think when it comes to the human need that is creativity and the professionalization of that once again we're going to see and this is you know this is in itself a difficult truth uh, that kind of polarization, where if you're kind of mediocre, sadly, you're nowhere. If you're brilliant, you can be even more brilliant and even more ahead of the pack and even better paid and more famous than before. Because the creative outputs created by these AIs can still be massaged and improved and enhanced and commented upon and developed by people. And the people who will be best at that will be creative people. Great writers will do the best work with chat GPT and GPT-3. Great illustrators and people with a visual sense, which is something I don't particularly have, you know, will, will do the best work with the text to image models. And they'll be able to do even more work that's even more brilliant and produce even more than ever before. And they'll, they'll get all the benefits from that. If you're a you know, dare I say, a jobbing illustrator who's a bit mediocre, that's where it gets really difficult for you because I can now produce quite a good 
illustrations in 10 seconds by typing a simple text prompt. So you get that the internet and these technologies, and this is just another example of it, are an incredible sorting machine for talent. And they're a brutal sorting machine too. If you're br everyone can access the absolute best, everyone can access the person who's absolutely brilliant. If you're that person, it's fantastic for you. If you're not that person, if you're somewhere in the middle where once upon a time you might have been able to make a living from that, now that gets very, very difficult. We're in this, you know, it's like those machine, it's like those sort of old machines where you see beads cascading down and they sort of some land at the very top and some land at the bottom. That's what the internet does for human beings and talent. It sorts us brutally. And that's what's coming. David, give us a sense of, and um, we're going to move on to the second trend in a second, but there are businesses who are already utilizing this technology to do stuff. So advertising agency, for example, I saw at the weekend has used this to generate a billboard campaign to make a point about the future and progress and things. Are there businesses that who are already deploying this technology in a real sort of practical sense? And then perhaps the second part of the question is for those people listening, thinking, oh, my good grief, what do I do tomorrow? Give us a sense of where those people might start to get their heads around, even whether it's a risk assessment or whether it's a you know an opportunity assessment. Yeah, I mean the the businesses that are deploying this now um, and making headlines and making money out of that are businesses that are on the whole that are using these tools to develop tools for other businesses. So I wouldn't say that big corporations, you know, your Unilever, your Coca-Cola or whatever, are, are deeply inside chat GPT and, 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 and have a handle on all this. But if you look at something like, if you look at a platform like Jasper, which is, um, which is a platform aimed at professional marketers that is, is using GPT-3 in the back end but has built this shiny platform that's very easy to use. And you can step to it as a marketer and say, you know, write me a YouTube script for a marketing, you know, video for an airline that's fun and that's aimed at 18 to 25s. And it will spit that out or write me a blog post, write me, you know, a tweet chain, whatever. And it claims to have tens of thousands of marketers from all kinds of huge corporations already using it. It raised 100 million at a 1.5 billion valuation. I think it makes it one of the fastest unicorns ever. So that's where we're at at the moment. If you're if you're wondering what does this mean for me, it feels a bit scary. It feels very unknown. I mean, look, the first step is just to just to dip your toe in the water. Have a go, go with to, it. It's fun. Yeah, go and go and go and have a play with it. You know, and they've made it incredibly easy to use. I mean, chat GPT is just GPT-3 um, optimized for back and forth dialogue, made easy to use, essentially. Go and have a play and get a sense of what this thing can do. Go and have a play with Midjourney or Stable Diffusion or Dali, the text to image models, get a sense for what they can do. If you're the types of people I speak to often, you know, leaders inside organizations, marketers, I think this is going to have huge ramifications for how brands are manifested in the world. Generative, among the many things AI will do is, is it will become a new platform on which brands need to be instantiated. So that's me with my sort of professional advice hat on for the sorts of people I speak to. People are going to be able to, people are going to expect to be able to step online and have a grown up conversation 
with your brand. And the way that will happen is that your brand will be instantiated as this AI that's been taught your brand values that sounds like your brand and that can have a proper conversation with them. And probably you're going to put a face on that. You'll have what's called like a virtual human and avatar attached to it. So I feel like I'm having a conversation with a real human being. I think that's a huge implication for, for brands and the way they show up in the world. Fascinating and exciting. And I wonder if we come back in a year's time, David, and have this conversation again. Um, we'll have seen some amazing, well, we'll have seen some extraordinary successes and probably some absolutely terrible <laughs> put in mouth moments as well from yes. brand marketers experimenting with generative AI. Brilliant. Let's get on to trend number two. Um, it feels like a slight handbrake turn because I, I know that you said that typically it's about you're looking for how new technology unlocks new ways to meet unmet needs. But this this trend is is slightly different. Um, the kind of control tweaks for a crazy world is what I've put in my notes. Just talk to us about what this means and where it's coming from. Yeah, this trend is really uh, is one that I've been speaking about for sort of a year or so. I'd now I'd say 18 months uh, and it continues to evolve and it's really founded in the pandemic you know the pandemic was of course like a, a, a crisis that goes without saying it was ex it was extremely weird that goes without saying you know, it's easy to forget just how weird the, the 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 two years we lived through were and that has left clearly lasting impacts and um, you know, it's interesting to just dive into those impacts and sort of try to make sense of where they've left people. And I think one of the one of the huge lessons of the pandemic for people was just fragility. You know, this global mega system we've built, global supply chains, the whole globalized techno modern consumer society we've built is fragile it can falter it can sort of fail slightly at times um, and I need to prepare myself I need to enhance my personal resilience so because it feels very believable now that that could happen again and when it does happen I need to be ready you know I just I just think that was a huge lasting lesson for people and there's all kinds of dimensions on that I think local resilience is a is a big dimension you know one of the big lessons was when that mega system fails what's there for me are local networks local people and resources you know the things immediately around me are what ride to the rescue so you see something of a rediscovery of local community and you saw in the pandemic for example lots of people joining very local kind of micro WhatsApp groups for their neighborhood, like literally getting to know their neighbors basically for the first time ever, you know, which is a, which is a commentary, maybe a sad commentary on, on the way we live now, particularly in cities. So local resilience is a, is a big deal. I think we're going to see people questing after new forms of personal control, new forms of personal resilience in the years ahead, given the big lesson we've just had in fragility and in the possibility of crisis. And then you layer on the cost of living crisis, the you know, energy prices, all of that. So David, how does that materialize that sort of more localized? And when you, when you, in your description there, local meant the traditional sense of local, as in literally my locality, the people who I live near to and the sort of services we share. Is there a sort of psychological locality to it as well sort of people who are like me who I feel an affinity with that I kind of retreat into that way of existing yes I think absolutely and I think that's again that's what one of the big sort of mega trends kind of that that the the internet has brought us is that we have the community that is as it were given to us by the place we're in 
but we also have exactly as you say communities of, of affinity and personal taste that we're that weren't that were not accessible to us once upon a time but are now because because of online because of the internet and when you layer in increasing skepticism and chaos around the big kind of global social networks like Facebook and Twitter and so on and what you've just articulated there I think what you see is um rising enthusiasm as it were for the idea of breaking away from the big social media platforms and 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 going kind of what I what I've read called being called dark social you know setting up little groups whatsapp groups setting up little groups on mastodon keeping them very gated I think that's the next evolution of social media is much smaller more fenced more kind of carefully gardened cultivated little social media groups that also do something that and and as I would put it that bolster my control or autonomy or resilience in some way even if it's just emotionally or spiritually because the the the, the pandemic was also a mental health crisis if you look at the office of national statistics numbers for anxiety and depression during the pandemic I mean it's incredible and they never they still haven't really come down mm. I mean they're not measuring you know, they've come off a bit but it causes huge spike in depression and anxiety reported depression and anxiety that has has not gone fallen back to pre-pandemic levels yet so those kinds of online communities I think are a big part of this but people also want I think new or, you know, some people also want new routes into their neighbourhood and the people and resources around them. I mean, there's this, I can't remember its name now, which is terrible, but there's this London, there's this UK startup that's doing very interesting work around local food production and sort of, cut, you know, allotments and growing vegetables in people's neighbourhoods. I mean, we've seen all of this before, but it has a new you know there's something different about it now because you've just seen global supply chains really fail and people are thinking you know if that happens again I will look really smart because of my subscription to this service that grows my you know cauliflower just down the road that you know, direct get really customer, granular about it that direct to customer trend has been um sort of happening for for a while now I'm wondering for those people listening from those big global organizations those massive brand franchises maybe the really big retailers just give us some unpack some of the implications of this type of way of thinking for those types of organizations yeah I just wonder I mean if you're a huge corporation with a global footprint or an even a national footprint in this country I think it can become a, a lot about partnerships you know, partnerships that get you into neighborhoods and into people's localities. I mean, a partnership with this startup would be a good would be a good start. How else can you be present in people's neighborhoods in new ways? I mean, in the US, literally, you see the emergence of sort of, you know, again, this is very granular, but but new kinds of what are essentially vending machines, you know, sort of yeah. that you un or, or automated stores, you know, you can walk into them, but you want there's no staff in there, you unlock it with your smartphone, you pick up what you want, you, you scan it all and you, you walk out. You could imagine springing up those kinds of automated stores in neighborhoods with the food grown locally, um, and it's a partnership between, you know, one of the big players and 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 a network of local players. I think thinking partnerships when you think about this is a powerful route to go. It's a good tip. Thank you very much. Right. Speeding on to trend number three, um, which I'm, I'm actually super fascinated by how this 
macro trend, which my goodness, at least a decade it's existed, this this push, this drive for responsible business transformation. So rather than running just for profit or for growth, we're thinking about people and the planet as we go along. And you've sort of applied a really, I think, interesting and important new inflection to this sort of ever increasing list of things that um, CEOs and, and chair people have to be mindful of when they're on that journey of not just doing the right thing, but being seen to do the right thing, which is um, transparency. Yeah, transparency, I think, is is huge. And again, I mean, overall, taken as a whole, again, it's one of those big sort of slow moving decade on decade mega trends that we've seen, we've all seen reshape the business and consumer arena across the last, you know, three, four decades. And again, it's a lot fueled by a connected world. A connected world is a transparent world. People can see inside organizations as never before. And what I've talked about a lot is that one of the biggest implications of that for organizations, and I just, I, I typically describe it like this, an organization used to be a black box. Essentially, you couldn't really see, outsiders couldn't really see what was going on in there. And the brand was whatever you wanted to paint on the walls of the box. So you could paint your brand, you could devise your brand, and people would come up, look at what you painted, and they would either like it or they wouldn't, and there we go. Now, because of transparency, because of a connected world, an organization is much more like a glass box. People can come and see inside your organization. They can see the people in there and what they're doing, the processes, the values. What they're really seeing is your internal culture. And the counterintuitive but really important implication of that is that your internal culture is now a part of your public facing brand. And that's not typically the way we tend to think about brand. We think about brand as something external and public facing that we push out. But what I'm saying with this is that that's not really the case anymore. Perhaps the most important aspect of your brand is just the truth of what is happening inside your organization. People will see your internal culture. They'll feel something about it. That means it becomes part of, you know, the emotional resonances they have around you, which is basically means it's part of your brand. So this now is a crucial aspect of your brand and you need to think about how to respond to that. How does that show up, David? I'm really, I'm, the reason why I'm um, particularly fascinated at this new inflection with responsible business is because organisations are not good at doing what they say and saying what they do in general. Because we have had, particularly from 2020, a really big change. I think a real sort of moment of truth for, oh, we do need to change the way we do these things. I can see how I can't keep this stuff in the box, to use your metaphor anymore. But it's going to take some time. And I think for a period of time, everybody was good with that. We understand it's a journey. I'm doing air quotes. But now we're in 2023. And my sense is that some organizations are still telling me how it's going to take time. And I'm interested to know how one would gauge what is and isn't an appropriate amount of time it takes to clean up your act, quite frankly. I mean, the pandemic was a fascinating time for this. You know, I've been talking about this, this trend, glass, the glass box brand, the glass box organization for, for a few years. And it's always really resonated with people. The pandemic 
uh, again, this is a trend that will take a, a long time to play out. You know, and this glass box model is is a model. It's not perfect. You know, no organization is perfectly transparent. But this is a way, this is a this is a, a way of modeling what transparency is doing to organizations. And the pandemic added really interesting dynamics in because when you got loads of people working from everyone working from home and all communication switched to messaging tools like Slack, what you got is the emergence of social media dynamics inside organizations. Essentially, people are emboldened to speak their truths, as it were, and um, to be much bolder and to be more argumentative even when they're not in the office with the boss complaining about what's going on. They're at home behind their keyboard complaining about what's going on. And when someone makes a complaint, someone in an office, you know, 10,000 miles away can see that and add. And so you got the emergence of social media dynamics and you even essentially got the, the emergence of, of social media style movements. Look at Apple II, hashtag Apple II, which kind of aped hashtag me too that was a movement inside apple that said we're not diverse you know this is a sexist culture um it's not it's not the way apple portrays itself on the outside that's really interesting and now we're in a hybrid world those kinds of dynamics will continue to accelerate this trend i think when it comes to how you respond and what's a reasonable time frame you know look the truth is nobody knows what a reasonable time frame is. And as an organization, I mean, without wanting to sound cynical, you know, you could that 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 works in your favor. You know, no one's standing there with a stopwatch and saying, you are now definitively past the time when you should have figured all this out. But what you my advice to you is fundamentally, you cannot run from this, you cannot fight this, you cannot run from the truth that is transparency, you need to embrace it and lean into it. And look, step one is nobody expects perfection. Everybody knows, you know, that everybody else is flawed and that large organizations and big corporate corporations are flawed. But what they will respond to is you being truthful about that saying we you know we have xyz challenges and we're going to go on a journey hopefully you can find a less corporate speak but we're going to go on a journey to try and put this put this right and come along with us and if you show people you're moving in the right direction that goes a really really long way nobody expects perfection but what they want to see is that you're moving in the right direction so don't do don't try to fight it don't clam up find ways to take people with you as you make these improvements. And if you do that, that can be the most powerful set of messages you, you send out about your brand, way more powerful than any traditional marketing or advertising. You know, we're saturated in those messages. But if you make positive changes to your internal culture and you share those stories with the world, it's one of the few remaining ways that you can transform the way people think about you. And I think just one last point on this transparency thing, David, is that um, perhaps if we take 2020 as a, as a starting point, it's a false starting point. But if we if we start um, looking at, at that year, um, it was 
I suppose this trend immediately affected corporate communications, external facing and Marcoms, external facing and HR teams. So they, were the, they were the first people into the fire of this. But what I think is interesting is that um, the transparency trend now has made its way all the way back into all of the different parts of the organization. It comes back through product because, of course, the way that your organization operates is made clear, it is made transparent in the product that you sell, in the customer service that you offer, in the technology that you build. So when people think of culture as, you know, things that happen in meeting rooms and town halls, that's not where culture happens. Culture happens in very material ways throughout their organization. So I think it perhaps is new and different types of leaders, leaders in the product teams, leaders in the finance teams that are being affected by this. Yeah, I mean, I just could not agree more. It's a it's absolutely perfect articulation, I think, of of a, of 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 the second and third order implications of this and the way this is playing out. I mean, I relentlessly say to clients, um, you know, one of the logical conclusions of this is that there's no such thing as the marketing department anymore. Every, <laughs> every department is the marketing department. This idea that there's that there's this little department inside your organization that's responsible for the way people outside see you and sort of what you and the values you project to the outside world is black box thinking is founded in an in an untransparent world, in a glass box world, in a transparent world. People can see inside that they can see what's going on everywhere so everyone is the marketing department everyone can play a role in projecting the values um, of your organization out there to the world and of course that's incredibly scary for someone like you know Unilever or Coca-Cola or Ford or whatever it is because they're like oh god I can't have my you know I can't have my product people sort of telling things to the outside world what if they say something wrong and it's mm. sort of like well okay why would they say something wrong you know you, you need to what are you worried about? What are yeah, you what is it? What yeah. is it going on there that you're worried about? You you need to start to get to work to put these things right. And if you and if you do that and you share that with people out there and you liberate the people inside your organization to, to be more open about that, it can transform the way people think about you. And look, you know, when I talk to these large organizations, I say, look, you know, we can start, you can you. You know, they say we can't have everyone tweeting about what they're doing, like inside our organization, it would be chaos. You know, we can't have everyone on social media talking about what they're doing at work. They're, they're not allowed to do that. That's forbidden. And I, I'm sort of like, could we choose 100 that you would be happy to? You know, could, could we could we handpick a few at, at first so you can take them on a step by step journey where they get more comfortable with this kind of thing? But, you know, the, the, again, the, 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 the way the wind is blowing. The, the dynamics in play here, I find it extremely difficult to believe that in 20 or 30 years, you're going to have large organisations full of people who accept that they are forbidden from talking online, basically from talking about what they do at work. It's just that's not going to fly. That is not going to be the world we live in. So, so how are you going to change around that? Um, it's a great example, that uh, glass box thinking of um, why if the change is coming anyway we need to adapt for it not fight against it it's a, yes. it's, a it's a it's a really good um uh, watch out um david we're going to do some rapid fire questions to finish stand by here they come just a few i hope i'm ready too, just hopefully nothing too scary um a trend you wish you were forecasting but remain stubbornly untrendy so what do you wish was happening that you can't see evidence coming i wish that 
we were moving to a world to, to a something of a post-capitalist world, dare I say, a world where we, we figure out um, new ways of transacting with one another, new ways of storing value, and we liberate millions of people to do what's really left when machines can do so much, which is simply be with people. What I feel that we're building an economy that requires less human labor than it did before, and we could liberate millions of people to simply be with others and care for others. That's what's left once you've automated lots of work. Mm. But as ever, our kind of social dynamics and our politics have not caught up with the realities of where we are technologically. And there's a lot of politics in the way of achieving that world. So that's the that's the big trend I wish I could say was happening, you know, a, a system wide structural remodeling. But I, I fear it's not happening. It's fascinating, actually, the point you make when we talk about the future of work. And I did um, a session with, with Wave talking about how organisations are going to run, basically. Um, the sense of how we how we work, the things we do, it really speaks to what we value as a society, the that not not just what people get paid, but the things that we prioritize, the things that we try to optimize for, and the point you make there about caring and care work would seem to me you would have to flip the pyramid entirely the other way around to get to those things. But perhaps that's almost the ultimate example of something that is going to happen anyway. So we may as well get on board for it now. Yeah, I mean, exactly, exactly that. And when you look at, again, the sort of demographics and population dynamics and this this huge um, aged population that we yeah. have coming down the pipeline, you know, we, 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 we treat that very, very capitalistically, if I can say that at the moment, we treat that as a sort of economic problem to be solved. You know, we, we see it so much through the lens of of, of transaction and the money imperative. Um, and we also haven't really caught up to the truth I think that technology can automate a lot of what we do and then what is left and what's left what what machines can never do is be another human being seeing me looking at me knowing I am here that's what's left and that's that's hugely important and if we could if we could liberate millions of people in into that kind of world and if we could if we could create a world where that is given its proper value uh you know that that would be such a fruitful change but of course that i'm sounding somewhat utopian now um, <laughs> it was inevitable but we can we can live and hope yeah <laughs> um, have you ever misread a trend have you has something ever gone a direction that you really didn't expect it to i think that you know there was a lot of thinking in the sort of you know 2013 2014 around data and personalization mm. that didn't particularly see the the huge crunch coming around social media and privacy mm. um it didn't it didn't see it acutely enough you know so there was a lot of talk back then about amazing data fueled personalization benefits that failed to see, you know, utter loss of trust in the big social media 
platforms. So, I mean, there's so many that, I mean, I'd have to think, I'd, I'd have to go back into the annals to get a more accurate answer, but that's the first one that springs to mind. You know, I don't, I don't think anyone covered that particularly well. It's a good example, David, because those a lot of that stuff. I was a, I'm a recovered marketer, and a, and I was very much still in my marketing career when the the right. excitement, the kind of thrill of you, everybody can have an advertisement that's just exactly directed to them at the exact right moment wherever they are, and it all at the time did feel a bit Minority Report. Remember the Tom Cruise movie, and of course in that movie that was a sinister you know utopian vision so it's surprising in a way that we all got carried away with it but I agree with you um yeah a bit like the metaverse now I mean you know it it wasn't portrayed in the novel Snow Crash as a sort of wonderful place to be so it is curious that that's the name that's stuck um but hey um finally what's a buzzword that we'll all be bored of hearing by the end of 2023 you know what I mean now I've ruined that by saying it already but I think metaverse I, I think, I, and this is this is interesting. This gives me an opportunity to make a broader point. I think we had a huge amount of metaverse hype in twenty one mm. and sort of twenty, the first half of twenty two. Huge, huge, historic levels of hype around the metaverse, um, and now we're we're in kind of deep scepticism and backlash. And when you have a ton of ridiculous hype, that's what you get. So I'm not kind mm. of complaining about that, but I think. The emergence of virtual worlds is powerful and will be lasting. And these worlds will become new domains where people quest after, and this kind of circles us back to the very beginning, quest after fundamental human needs. You know, these will be new domains where humans can go to be humans and quest after fundamental human needs like convenience and value and status and meaning and being seen by other humans. So I do think it's powerful. I think the people who are saying, oh, that metaverse was all a load of hype. It's all a load of rubbish. Forget that. They are wrong. Though I understand where they're coming from because the hype was also kind of ridiculous. But I think the word metaverse will perhaps sound to us as some of the phrases of the very early internet sound to us now. You know, no one talks anymore about surfing the information superhighway you know what I mean I think it will sound I think it will sound like that surfing the web all of that stuff the information superhighway all of that kind of very early internet uh terminology that now I mean you know people under 25 are probably probably don't even know what I'm talking (laughs) what are you talking about exactly all of that sounds you know somewhat cringe or quaint or maybe even amusing if you've never heard it before it, it died away, but it doesn't mean that the internet died away. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't mean the yeah. internet wasn't a big deal. Yeah. I think the same thing. So I think I think the metaverse word will be one that we perhaps view with a certain degree of cringe in a few years, but that virtual worlds, the actual underlying ideas around the metaverse are powerful and some and and they will produce, you know, social and economic results. David, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been completely fascinating. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. I'm Liz Mosley, and that's it for today's Making Ways podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's Making Ways podcast. If you enjoyed it, please check out some of our other podcasts, such as Fred Reed, the former founding CEO of Virgin America, president of Lufthansa, president of Delta Airlines, who also worked five years with Brian Chesky at Airbnb and also with Larry Page in his private company, Kitty Hawk. So that incredible experience has gave him some amazing stories to share on lessons in leadership. Also, an amazing podcast with Elizabeth Bryant, vice president of people at the legendary Southwest Airlines that really gets into their reputation for excellence around people, culture and service. 
All our podcasts are available on the usual platforms, so please check them out and stay curious.